0: Okay, and City Limits is on the air uh, again, John, and it's November, so it's the first first Wednesday in November. Here we are. Uh, a couple of years we are, John, months. we are, yeah, really. Fairly...
1: haven't had a chance to ask, ask
0: Kevin yet whether he's... Uh... You had a bountiful day? Um, bountiful in terms of alcohol. But, uh, <laughs> a long lunch uh, with friends, but we... We did watch the cup there, but only there was only one person at the whole place who had a bet on the cup. Actually, oh,
1: really? Oh, okay. uh, well, I
0: thought you, know, yeah. you had no idea, just throwing your money. Um, anyway, that's that, and he won. But it was good, and it was a bloke who owed me money, so he actually paid me back. So I sort of well, won. Didn't oh, I? you I did win? You know, that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Considering what <laughs> I know about your friends, Kevin, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you, John. No, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, just as a comment, because I'd went here and she reported, probably well, have mention that I'd went over. We haven't mentioned. Any of us are, have we? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'd win, of course, Wednesday Brecky, but she was reporting in from the um, iMart show last week as well. Oh, okay. Regularly. And John McPherson's here, of course, our transport guru, um, who got, got the title because we called him that. And I'm Kevin Healy. <laughs> and um, here we are. And it's, it is transport today. And we're going to, well, John, you've got a guest um, mm, lined up. Um, yeah. Tell us about him.
1: Okay. Peter, Peter Parker, his name I'll is... I'll pour some tea while you're talking. All right, about do that.
0: Do you want a cup of tea? Yes, I do. Right here.
1: And uh, Peter's uh, been a transport activist and um, worked in the transport um, field for a long time in various roles in government and elsewhere. And uh, he's um, a guy who also runs um, a blog uh, called uh, Melbourne in Transit, uh, which is very... Very interesting if you're into public transport, particularly Melbourne public transport, because uh-huh. he analyses all the issues that Melbourne public transport yeah. uh, has, which are many uh, and um, well worth reading. So so uh, Peter's particularly interested in buses and uh, certainly the bus network is part of the things yeah. in Melbourne that are, are the yeah. most...
0: There's a bit of room for improvement there. Well, you yeah, put it. Putting yeah, it mild. about one hundred
1: percent, yeah, yeah. roughly. So I thought, thought um, perhaps a twenty-minute chat with Peter would be yeah. very, oh, good, very good, interesting. Yeah. Okay,
0: so we'll yeah. talk to Peter in the second half of the show. The yeah. first half, we're going to talk to Helen Vandenberg, who we spoke to about two or three weeks ago, with the the long, long, decades-long saga of the Tullamarine toxic waste mm. dump. Uh, but there was a meeting last week where an auditor reported back, a government auditor reported back, and uh, Helen went there <laughs> full of fire. Right, <laughs> and we're going to get a quick report from Helen in the first half, just what happened at yep. that meeting last week. And yep. Uh, yep. The, it's an ongoing saga that one. Uh, but There's I just thought of mention,
1: plenty of other uh, yeah environmental sagas as well. Really. Well, the
0: Herald Sun um, last week it gave a very good coverage, I thought, of the iMart uh, show. Right. Um, very very balanced. <laughs> uh, even horses got hit police got injured and um uh, what it was interesting though Id when I thought was um when you watched it on telly and they kept telling you how violent the protesters were they must have had a difficulty getting shots of the protesters being violent and all they were showing were the police retaliating obviously uh,
2: yeah from my experience of it it was a lot of um a lot of people chanting but not doing much more than just chanting no, uh, right. uh, and still getting used batons against mm. them. Right. I mean, there was some yeah. mild shoving from us on protesters because uh, we were in a blockade and that happens when you've got a lot of people chained up together. You know, one person moves, everyone moves. But uh, no, no real violence from my end of experiencing no, 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 actually being no. there.
0: <laughs> no, it reminded me a lot of, that's the nearest I've seen for a long time to, in my youth, um, the anti Vietnam protest, mm. 68 July 4 at the American consulate and subsequently marching through city, um, was the most violent. That and the Springbok 71 at Olympic Park oh, yes, yes. were the two most violent ones I was in with the coppers and this was mm. very similar. Mm. You know, horses everywhere and uh, coppers just being nasty and violent for its own sake. And Yeah, mm. it was mm. really, really nasty. All right, um, but on the really important news in the Herald Sun and... Almost every day for the leading up to something every day they have they usually have a model, a so called or a well known celebrity who can be photographed, um, saying how wonderful this event 's going to be and how they all love it and uh, we 've had models almost every day for the past several weeks, saying how everyone just loves the cup carnival, the bird cage, where they all go for free, of course with the corporate uh, joints, yep. um, and how everyone just loves the fashion is so wonderful. It brings them out, and it's great. Well, this week, they, I think the headline says hitting the high points, and I think from the Herald Sun's point of view, they did. Um, there's, there's a photo here. There's, well, let's start. Saturday morning, and I promise you I didn't buy it, but I picked it up at the TAB. Um, <laughs> old school ride gets the chop. And they've got this woman, Megan, with the uh, with a helicopter, and she's got the cup in her hand and dress, and she looks lovely with the yellow dress and the hat. Model Tegan Martin, this is the first I've heard of Teague, but she's coming <laughs> into the news, still remembers the days uh, when her ride share wasn't so glamorous. The 350 bus in Newcastle, oh, it links into transport, John. 350 bus in Newcastle took me everywhere, the former Miss Universe Australia said, oh, that's who she is at Flemington yesterday. It was the only way to get anywhere before I got my license. Oh, how times have changed. Martin, this year's Melbourne Cup Carnival ambassador, will arrive at the track in an Uber chopper. I'll be, I'll be arriving in first-class style, she said, laughing. My friends are so jealous they'll be in a car for an hour while I'm cruising over the top of them. Uber's Victoria boss Matt Horn said, this year is about owning the arrival, of moment, the arrival moment and helping people arrive in style. There's an opportunity mm. to create some magic as they kick the day off. Now, which bit of that is real news? And which bit of that is an ad? Um, and... Um, you were, I felt the arrival moment as I walked into the studio here today. John, Did you feel oh, the
1: arrival did, moment? Oh, you Kevin. You arrived yeah. so so dramatically that yes. it was definitely news. The yeah, arrival
0: yeah. moment. Anyway, that was... The, but then the next day, no, that was Saturday, Monday morning, here she is again, same outfit, sitting in the chopper. Model Teagan Martin was treated to a bird's-eye view of Flemington ahead of her arrival at the Melbourne Cup tomorrow. Martin, a former Miss Universe, etc., is the ambassador. Seeing every corner of Flemington while well, no one is here has been a real dream, Martin said. Well, mm. She must have spent hours thinking about she, that. She doesn't even want the bus That's right, a to real be there. I thought It's real dream. It's super love the quiet and chilled, and I've really noticed okay. how perfect every corner of the track is. It's perfectly manicured, and people work around the clock. It's amazing to see all, all the effort that goes mm. into creating a world class event. I'm really on the inside this year. I've got to know some of the jockeys, the trainers, the horses. Since you'll travel to and from the cup by Uber Chopper. Isn't that, isn't that great news?
2: If she's, learnt, if she's, like, learned about the horses, it's going to be really sad when one of them dies because, yeah. you know, of an accident. That's right, that's so right. So she's right. going to get to say hello to the horses and that's probably right. goodbye. And goodbye.
0: <laughs> <what it> <laughs> you say hello, I say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> it was at the Beatles, wasn't it? Um, age care... Well, this is, this is a serious one now. The, the last Friday that report came out, or might have been Thursday, reported Friday about the treatment of age care and the interim report, which mm. was quite devastating... But then by Monday in the financial review, the aged care providers had found the solution to the problem of why, why they treat people so badly. More money. They need more government money, John. You got it. Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, private aged care operators hope that the Morrison government's response to the interim report of the Aged Care Royal Commission will flow through into more taxpayer funding of residential facilities, etc. So isn't that wonderful?
1: Terrific. Yes. The one true. thing the government can't do. That's what they will I'll be saying everything but that's all care, no responsibility.
0: Yes, and also, um, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, we'll get to Helen. Yeah, we we mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, that employers and the government now want to bring in legislation to allow length of project agreements with, with workers rather than say they expire in four years and halfway through the project the workers can and the workers can make another claim uh, and even take industrial exit in that period and it's it said that this is costing resource companies millions and a terrible <laughs> thing you know the bloody workers in the right. trouble. So now the um, the government wants Wants length of term ones, but right. now the employers are going out and want to extend that. They want non union options for major projects as well, so they can have, can have oh, okay. a non union project, which right. is all very right. good. And the value of a non union project, I think, was it was was shown in the in the federal court or the work, um, the Fair Work Commission last mm-hmm. week, um, where a a mob who um, serviced the rigs out on offshore rigs, a mob called Rig Force. Uh, their enterprise agreement was even thrown out by the court because they failed to tell the workers that what they were agreeing to was in fact a reduction in wages and not an increase. Uh, but further to that, they wow. actually made an agreement with three workers uh, somewhere—the old story they do—agreement with three workers in a different company. Mm-hmm. Um, the alliance, the full we've best, heard that
1: one before. Yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right,
0: that's mm. right. Um, and they um, and so the court actually threw it out. And the, the unions have now got involved in that one, but it's right. just a classic case of how they operate. So if, in fact, they could get non-union agreements, imagine the sort of uh, mm. pro-worker agreements mm. we'd be seeing all mm. the time, I imagine. Mm. Yeah, would mm. be terrific.
1: It'd be great. Yeah,
0: and just before we go to Helen Vandenberg, uh, you will be pleased to know also that Netflix um, paid six percent tax on its <laughs> Australian <laughs> earnings. Isn't that wonderful? Right. <laughs> just thought I'd throw <laughs> that one in for you. Well, a, it seems to
1: be a classic Classic example of all those big um, uh, firms from Silicon Valley—they don't pay tax anywhere. No,
0: no, no, they don't. They, uh, but they only made a little bit. They, they paid only three forty one seven ninety three in the twenty eighteen calendar year, despite an estimated six hundred million to one billion from local subscribers. Right. So. <laughs> That's not bad point. Of, no, yeah. it's pretty, I mean, they, um, pretty impressive. They all say and they said they are meeting all their legal taxes. Oh, yes, yes, yes absolutely. Yes, yes. And,
1: and I'm sure the Treasurer would agree with yes, them. Yes, and yeah. we're not
0: suggesting any illegality no, here. No, no. No, Nothing no, like that. No, no, that's right. Silicon
1: Valley is very, very yeah. honest and very upright. <laughs>
0: yeah, let's get, speaking of honest and upright, let's get one who really is Helen yes, Vanderbilt. Yes, she, carries a,
1: she carries <laughs> the true cross. That's <laughs> that
0: right. one.
2: <laughs> we chucking to a song?
0: Um, Whatever, yeah, cut to something. We
2: yeah, okay. Yeah. We've got nameless, faceless by Courtney Barnett. Enjoy. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and on the line we've got Helen Vandenberg, who I don't think needs to be introduced to our listeners too much. It must be close to 20 years now we've been talking toxic waste dumps at Tullamarine with with Helen, and uh, nothing seems to move too fast except that Helen gets more and more uh, attacking, more and more of an aggressive as they go along. And um, Helen, last, last week, we spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, but following that there was a meeting where there was an auditor's report. Can you tell us about it? And that was last Thursday, I think, or whatever day it was last week.
2: Yeah, it was Halloween. Um, right. The um, the auditor not only writes a clear report, he gives a, an, an, a, he gave a very Just a bit clear... of background. Who
0: appointed the auditor and where from, et cetera? So just that background.
2: The auditor is actually employed by GHD, but they get their Who is? certification from the EPA.
0: Right, GHD being, then, sorry, GHD being...
2: Uh, a great big international company that looks after mines and right, okay. all sorts of yep. other things and it, it's got a very broad spectrum of capabilities um, they did in the 2007 the secondary risk assessment they did an excellent report on the chemical composition of El Napple. Um and uh, so anyhow the auditor gets his independence certification from EPA he's appointed by the company it, um, oh, sorry. Um, that's my other phone going, Yoss, can you take that out of the room, please? Um, the EPA is calling me. Anyhow, um, the, the, that's on another matter. The Sorry about that. Uh, then he comes in and he checks all the testing that's been done by other companies, sees if the people who carried it out were credentialed to do it, that it was carried out correctly. One of his findings was that they were taking their readings in the wrong climatic conditions, which makes the results useless. Um, he, He has to just check... It's a peer review of the other consultants' works, basically, and then he makes recommendations as to its adequacy, any changes that might need to occur and what the risk associated with the site is. Basically, he said he raised the level of risk from low to medium because there wasn't any data and under the precautionary principle, therefore, he would have to do that. And we we kind of thought that's fair and reasonable because we've been saying for a long time, you know, uh, we've had instances in the past where with missing data, people have still drawn conclusions. So given that there is an extensive period where clean away failed to conduct monitoring, failed to notify the EPA, obviously had damaged well heads where you had excessive amounts of methane and carbon dioxide coming out. Um, Didn't report that to the EPA either. He picked up on all of that and then the EPA was apparently notified in September 2018. They issued a pan which is a pollution abatement, and they're just telling CleanAway to fix up a certain amount of those things within a month or else. CleanAway then came up with their plan for doing everything and the auditor's still been hanging around for a while to make sure things were going right. So <clears throat> he basically said that because they haven't managed this audit at all well, he recommended <clears throat> that they have another audit next year and the year after till they get into the the habit of monitoring. He also gave them detailed... Ideas on how to get an Excel sheet up and how to record things that it made Cleanaway look pathetic, uh, incompetent, and um, indifferent to its responsibilities. Mm. And uh, and the EPA actually said at the meeting they regarded their non-compliance as breaches of their pan. So I'm assuming that means they'll eventually get around to finding them. Yeah. However, what is still alarming to the community is that EPA, EPA is adamant that they didn't know anything till September 2018. That then raises the question: that Why wasn't the community notified by either Cleanaway or EPA? Because there was a community meeting in the October of 2018 where we could have been told these problems, and no one was. Anyhow, it. Um, I wanted to know. Uh, the auditor also made a remark in his um, audit. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. That he suggested that the annual general report that CleanAway submits should indicate how they're progressing on their audit plan. Apparently, it hasn't been doing that, which is why, according to the EPA, they couldn't pick up that they were non compliant. That still leaves you with the feeling that EPA doesn't go out and check, EPA doesn't ring and ask, EPA doesn't take any interest in the site, they just leave it to clean away and then an auditor will come in and if the auditor finds things wrong, oh well, then they'll act. And that's not protecting the community, so that's an issue we still have to take up with EPA.
0: You mentioned the difference there of clean away. Um, Surely, um, we've talked about this so many times over the years, but surely, in terms of indifference, their real role ought to be to clean the whole place up completely, shouldn't it?
2: Well, under the current EPA Act, they have, to make, they have to clean it up to the maximum extent achievable. In other words, in, insofar as what modern technology will allow you to do that. The issue is not isn't colour, or isn't, too, a, isn't
0: too costly to them one assumes as well that could come about
2: Oh well absolutely because I mean where there's really serious <laughs> groundwater pollution you suck it up clean it and then you put it back in the aquifer so that's a pretty expensive process Clearly, Clean Away do not want to suck up the El Nappel. They're doing everything they can to mount an argument, an argument which EPA is currently still swallowing, that, oh, look, it's not moving much. We know it's under Mound 1 or 2. What is actually happening to this mound of toxic oil that's floating on top of the water is that it's volatilizing, going into gas, and then some of it will be... and. Where there are preferential pathways of escaping, which were proven to exist back in 2007, that's how it'll escape. It also dissolves into the water. So what the EPA and CleanAway are currently relying on are that some of it will go into gas and get caught in the gas extraction system. Some will just be fugitive gases escaping in a variety of places. And the rest will dissolve into the groundwater and gradually, you know, get its way out to Port Phillip Bay. Um, there is some theory that it will only str- go so many kilometres off-site and then it won't go any further. This is just um, unacceptable to the community. There is technology that exists whereby you can suck that El Naple up and, as the community has often said, we would prefer that. We don't care how long it takes. It's better to bring it up and then destroy it rather than have it leaking into the environment for the next 100 years or so. Mm.
0: So, so where do we go However, to... yeah. the
2: expense... Sorry. I mean, <laughs> while people think it's a low risk, they are happy to live with it. The point is the risk has gone up to medium. The others are because of the lack of data, and he's saying that when they've got the consistent data like they used to be able to collect, it will probably go back to low. Whereas Yoss asked the question in the meeting, what happens if that adjoining 500 metres buffer land gets built on? He said, oh, that takes the risk back to medium. Now, Clean Away are trying to sell that buffer land. They always are. So, in other words, um, they will... And that would put buildings within 33 metres of the edge of the waste cell. So how could that possibly be good planning? How could any planning minister allow that to happen? How could any council agree that it is good to develop that buffer land?
0: As usual, take all that as rhetorical. Um, But um, Yoss, by the way, being the person who just took the phone out of the room, (laughs) mentioned Yoss. Uh, But um, that gas you talked about, I mean, if that's coming out, then it's clearly getting into the atmosphere locally. And we have talked before about the incidences of cancers around that site.
2: Yeah, well, we used to have 74, then it went to 144. It's now over 200. Mm. And the, yeah. the, the worry for us, Kevin, is that there are young families now moving in, right? And, you know, with urban consolidation and dual development and, um, you know, you can get two or three units on a block these days or five in some cases... You're going to have a bigger constant. You're going to have a more densely populated area that's close to a dump, which everyone um, agrees the chemicals will be active for a minimum of 100 years. So... um, Oh, and the other thing CleanAway forgot to do was to monitor the chemicals of concern, which are the 120 toxic chemicals it's supposed to monitor, and they just failed to do that. So if they're getting that indifferent to their responsibilities already imagine what it will be like down the track now part of the problem is that they said oh well there was construction happening at the airport therefore we couldn't get to our sites if they're going to do there are quite a number of bores on the buffer land so if that's going to be sold and developed how will they be able to get uh access to those monitoring bores right and yet they tell us every time oh well if we sell it we'll make it mandatory that we can access the bores well, the truth is we won't be able to access them during construction time. So, And these are the bores closest to the homes, and that's part of the way that the, um, the escape paths are known to exist, mm. the preferential pathways. We've
0: only got about a minute left, Helen, but just summing up here, where do we go from here then?
2: Well, as one of the residents said, if we weren't here monitoring, what the heck would everybody be getting away with? We don't have any option but to maintain our watching brief to and to keep holding EPA and the company accountable. Okay. And um, we are having a meeting on the um, 12th of November with residents to discuss what actions we think we should take further. I didn't further want to raise this
0: earlier, take. Helen, because I knew you'd be too distressed to go on with the interview. But there was a report in the paper last week that uh, an economic downturn, uh, softer commodity prices and fewer trucks ship- um, shipping their waste into Queensland from New South Wales has combined to undermine profit growth for waste management groups sent away their profits dropped, Helen. Do
2: you mean clean away?
0: Clean away. I mean, did I say this anyway? Clean away, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Look, they're, they're acting it's like tragic, the golden-headed it? boys of the environment at the moment. They're out there sponsoring all sorts of things and rescuing yes. the Victorian government's dealing with plastic and everything. But if once you get to know the other side of clean away, it's not such a glossy picture.
0: No, but they do hope profit growth will come from price increases and in a cost-cutting program. So there's a bit of hope there yet for them. Uh, but I, just, I didn't want to raise that earlier because I knew you'd be too distressed about any problem with clean away. No,
2: I'm not at all surprised.
0: <laughs> OK. Well, look, for Helen, thanks for your time again. There's no doubt as it goes on we're going to keep talking about these issues and other problems in that part of the world around, around pollution and environment issues.
2: Yes, well, well it's the on. season for stayers,
0: isn't it? It is indeed. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Helen Vandenberg there, who's such a long-term campaigner on all these things in that part of the world. We used to do some street theatre together years ago, actually. Really? Yeah, okay. going on and on. Yeah. Anyway. Um, OK, we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll we'll talk a bit of transport and then get uh, Peter Parker mm. on the line. Okay. Is it Paul? No, what's
1: his name? Peter, yeah, Peter.
0: Mm. You're right, OK. Mm.
2: Go to 3cr.org.au to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the Community Radio Codes of Practice. The Codes of Practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we
1: are. Right, well, here we are, back from, back from a touch of um, Indian classical music and um, into uh, public transport. Um, I'm John McPherson and, we, of course, I've got uh, my colleague Kevin Healy and Idwin doing the panel. And uh, we're about to talk to Peter Parker, who's a long-term public transport activist, and he's worked extensively in public transport, government, and I think other areas. And uh, he has a particular interest in the bus networks, I think. He uh, runs a blog on the net called uh, Melbourne in Transit, which um, he's been running a very fascinating series of very detailed analysis of um, How the bus services run in various regional parts of Melbourne, Metro Melbourne, and um, how how things could be improved. And needless to say, they could be improved an awful lot. So, Peter, are you there? Hello.
3: Yes. Good morning, John.
1: Oh, nice to talk to you. And uh, here we are with uh, with uh, Kevin as well. So, hello, Kevin. Hello,
0: John. Peter, um, let's kick off. Um, The bus services in Melbourne, I I, um, had to go over to Preston to lunch yesterday from Brunswick, and I caught the Brunswick Road bus around to the the tram to Preston at at the Peter Montes corner there. Um, That bus yesterday was running one one, one an hour and then two an hour alternatively, um, which is pretty inadequate, isn't it, for a public transport system in inner Melbourne?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, One of the interesting things, of course, yesterday, being a public holiday, they haven't quite worked out how the buses should run. Most routes would run a Saturday timetable, but you've got some routes that run on Saturdays but not public holidays. You've got some routes that finish at uh, about noon on Saturday because, being a public holiday, a Saturday timetable runs. so. A lot of the times, the bus timetables don't reflect current travel needs. A lot of them were done reflect the shopping patterns of, say, the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. A lot reflect very severe service cuts that were made in about nineteen ninety, ninety one under John Kane, Joan Kerner. Uh, some of, a lot of those services have been put back later on, but a lot of our timetables still are legacies of previous service cuts and uh, previous shopping and living patterns, which modern Melbourne does not adhere to.
1: So what what is the problem that no, no agencies seem to be able to take a deep breath and try and reanalyse what's needed and and change what's provided? It seems to be almost impossible for these things to be um, improved again or or you know, re-analysed and reinstated at a sensible level. What's what's the inhibition? Is it just purely that they don't want to rock the boat in any way, they being the, um, say, PTB or whatever agency runs the buses now, and the private operators? What, what would you think?
3: I think part of it is due to funding. Um, if you look at the bus service kilometres, and in fact public transport service kilometres per capita, It's actually declining and declining quite sharply. It's because we are adding population but aren't matching it with increased services, so there's some pressure there. There's also a reluctance to greatly change the network in many areas. There are exceptions. There have been some good networks put in in some areas like the City of Brimbank, City of Wyndham. However, there seems to be a political wariness about you change a bus route then some people may be disadvantaged and one of the things is that if you want to get greater efficiency from a bus network you do need to look at where the people are going what are current travel needs and to try and address issues of over servicing in the past there are still some areas that are probably excessively served for their current demographics they tend to be oddly quite richer areas where people often do own cars, drive cars and might not use buses. However, some of those areas might have service until midnight on a Sunday night while you've got (laughs) other areas that have higher social needs that might not have seven-day service yet and uh, their services may be infrequent or not connected with trains. So Mm. there's a great deal of inertia that may be starting to change. Um, It's interesting how in recent governments there have been various changes like... Under the Liberal government, for instance, as Terry Mulder as Minister, although the Liberals didn't put a lot of extra money into buses, they did allow some quite significant network reforms and they have worked out quite well. Mm. Uh, the Labor Party tends to be a bit more risk-averse in relation to... a bit more sensitive about some bus routes being taken away or altered, so it may mean that some people might have to change buses, for instance, yeah. to complete their trip. It might be overall beneficial, but there's a great deal of reluctance politically to remove a service, even if an area is mm. excessively served. Yeah, we saw,
1: saw that with that funny little bus route in Brunswick. Is it, you know that little...
0: Yes, the one, whatever it was called, the one yeah. up, up whatever street yeah, it was. The, Hope, street, the, the Hope Street. Hope Street, street yeah. yeah. The Hope
1: Street bus was yeah. an the
3: interesting Hope thing. Bus, the bus... 509 yes that ran approximately every 20 or so minutes it was taken it was taken away the big mistake there was that resources were ripped out of the area and were not put into adjacent routes that would right. have benefited for, for instance route 503 which is a much busier route on an adjacent street doesn't run Sundays it's got very limited operating hours um yeah. And in this case, service was just taken out of Brunswick and not put back. And then later on, the 509 was reinstated, but instead of every 20 minutes, approximately every hour on a longer route. Right. So, can,
1: so can I ask you, Peter, do we have any basic level of service that's supposed to be provided in, in, in the, the bus closest, network?
3: The closest we got to that was During around 2006 to 2010, the government put in a program of minimum service standards, Mm -hmm. and that was basically a bus every hour or better until 9pm, seven days a week. A lot of bus routes did get upgraded to that level of service. Um, It might not seem a very high level of service, but it was far better than what existed before. Uh, However, there's probably still maybe 50 or 60 bus routes that don't even have that minimum level of service, including in densely populated areas. Like, even in Brunswick, you've got routes like the 503, 506 that don't run Sundays, even though there's clearly demand for them. There's routes like 800, a main road route um, that goes past the Premier's office up Dan Long Road into Chadston. That's very well used at the times that it runs, on weekdays, but... only runs every two hours on Sunday afternoons and not at all on Sunday. And, and is that, that a feeder
1: bus to Chadston, I think? Is that right?
3: That is a major main road bus to Chadston, whose busiest retail times are Sundays and Sundays, yet the main road route up down Long Road doesn't run that time. It did actually used to, if you look at the timetables from 1988, right. it did, but <coughs> it was a victim of service cuts in 1990, 1991 and was never put back.
1: Well, it, it mm-hmm. yeah. Well, just from you know from what you've said, which is you know it's it's pretty shattering, really, that that we seem to have such a hodgepodge, and uh, how to how to get moved forward from here. I mean, I know I'm jumping jumping ahead to what do we do next, but uh, mm. it does seem incredibly. Well Peter mentioned
0: infrequent services. And yeah. frequency we've always said in this program, is yeah. frequency is the key to getting people on public mm. transport. Mm. If you run it Absolutely. once an hour mm. it's gonna stay with a few passengers mm. and it mm. and it only only seems to service and you know a certain section of the population. Yeah, but we're having but,
1: yeah. you know, we're having important bus routes which have no service in, in, in at times when you know, service would is mm. obvious. You know, yeah. so obviously needed. Yeah.
3: The, the odd thing is that, um, although the big picture is that service per capita is declining, and right. if we want to get people on buses, then we need to sort that out. And however, if we look at the resources we currently have for buses, there's quite a degree of misallocation. Like there are still there are buses running down to Brighton Beach at midnight on a Sunday, and that has parallel trains. Yet somewhere like Doncaster area which doesn't have trains their buses finish at 9pm on a Sunday and there's a lot of cases where you've got routes servicing very low density semi-rural areas for instance the 578 through back of Eltham through Research that right. runs two buses an hour on a Sunday yet you have the 900 smart bus which runs from Chadston uh, runs from Caulfield through Chadston out to Roeville. that was the substitute for the uh, roval train line that also runs two buses an hour yet it has vastly higher patronage and yeah. definitely higher demand and higher social need
1: so we yeah so so it's it's just reinforcing the message that that the um that that there seems to be no no attempt made to um even rationalize these service levels uh,
3: um as a network, well, I would say yes, probably about 70% of the Melbourne bus network reflects historical right. legacies, like you've got cases of buses every 23 minutes at around Greensboro trying to connect with trains every 20 minutes, which of course <laughs> they can't. Um, be- however, we should mention there have been good examples of network reform, for instance, um, the city of... Wyndham, when Regional Rail Link came in in 2015, it also got a new bus network, and that has been very successful. It's a two-tier network. So you've got the main routes are every 20 minutes, um, seven days a week on the main roads, and they connect in with the trains, which are also every 20 minutes. And then in between those, you've got neighbourhood routes every 40 minutes. And they have constant operating hours. They're all seven-day service and you don't have oddities like what we had yesterday with different public holiday patterns on different routes. So mm. it is possible to reinvent a bus network based on simple direct routes with uniform timetables that connect with trains, but there seems to be a reluctance to do so in many areas.
1: Yeah, now, could just, I ask... Sorry, I was just going to ask about that Wyndham network. Now, does that actually manage to um, connect with the... Um, the the, uh, v, uh, the sorry the V line trains that are operating as, as a suburban service to Vale and Tarnite does that does that all manage to coordinate? Is that- uh,
3: yes, yes they do. Um, it's sometimes difficult because you've got some bus routes that, in fact, most of the bus routes run between one station on the yes. Werribee line and one on the Geelong line. But the frequencies are generally harmonised. One of the issues there is that the Geelong line only runs every 40 minutes on a weekend, and if you've got buses every 20 minutes, which a couple of the routes run, then every second bus won't meet a train. Um, But, yeah, generally there's been an attempt to provide connections, and if you look at areas where there are connections provided well, such as in the Point Cook area there's um, huge success in the numbers of people that take buses to Williams Landing Station versus those who, who drive and, and park. You were
1: saying um, that about 50% of the um, patronage at Williams Landing arrives by bus, mm. is that right? I,
3: I'm not sure if it's quite as high as 50%. Right, I, it, it might high. be 35 or 40, but okay, it's a similar yeah. number mm. to the number of people that drive cars and park at Williams Landing, right. and that has resulted in a fairly recent upgrade so that Route 495 runs every uh-huh. 10 minutes.
0: Does that and bus, 10, Peter, they get caught up in those massive traffic jams in that part of the world that, at peak times?
3: Or- yes, that, that's um, a massive problem. One, one of the things that, you know, if, if you've got buses carrying, you know, 40 or 50 people, you really do need to provide mm. um, bus priority, uh, bus lanes, priority at traffic lights, um, and that's so that you can move more people more efficiently. And if you did that, you would be able to speed up the buses, and if you have higher speed, then that means you can buy higher frequency, which makes the service more attractive. So mm. you're setting off a virtuous circle that's encouraging more people to take the bus if you yeah. do provide the bus priority. So yeah. that one
1: bus can, can provide two, two return trips, say, in the peak hour to the station rather than one, and really double its productivity. I'm Things not like sure that. If, It wouldn't um, be that good, probably, but that would be the direction you'd move in.
3: Correct and yeah. that's another aspect is the design of bus routes like yeah. not so much Williams Landing but if you look at Tarnit and Hoppers Crossing the bus routes there go from one station on the Geelong line down to one station on the uh, Werribee line which means that buses in both directions are carrying peak loadings of passengers to stations on different lines so it's a very efficient network. Mm. Yeah, You yeah.
0: mentioned um, Tarnit and the connective connectivity there But a friend of mine who goes out once a week to treat a patient, he's a masseur when he goes out on public transport, tells me that they're very rarely on time, and that's a real problem.
3: It is. Um, There's issues with bus priority, access to Tarnit Station, other uh, traffic. Um, There are ways that you can get around that, like with the bus lanes, the signal priority. Um, Frequency also... um, uh, solves a multitude of ills like if if you're able to run both the trains and the buses every 10 minutes then minor delay mm. wouldn't result in um, in long waits
1: yeah that mm. is really the trick isn't it if you can get the frequency up on on both your modes bus mm. and train you you have a chance then to uh, you know the as you say the you know, the interchange won't blow out to some ridiculous level if if one or other modes running a bit late
3: Yeah, and, uh, and of course, frequency is one of the really powerful things. Um, Providing peak frequency is somewhat expensive because you may need to buy new buses that are only used for a short time. Um, In some areas, you can do quite creative things with school buses, like potentially you could provide extra commuter services at, say, 6 or 7 a.m. before the school Mm. buses are needed for carrying students, and then in in the afternoon at, say, 5, 6, 7 p.m., you can provide extra service there. So they are the sorts of things that... ..how you can reform a bus network and provide better frequencies um, at commuting times for not very much money. Um, you can also run some of those buses on weekends because, you know, shopping centres very busy on weekends, yet most of the buses are sitting around idle in depots, um, not being used when they should be in revenue service. Um, the smart buses, for instance, they run every 15 minutes, uh, Monday to Friday, most of them drop to every half hour on weekend. Um, even though on some routes they're actually more productive in terms of passenger boardings per bus hour on a weekend than on a, on a weekday, and that that's telling us that uh, there's been a real underservicing of popular routes on weekends
0: yeah the, the sky rail network is which is increasing um, despite the attempts of the herald Sun um, we've argued that with that open land that you know the land that opens up under them there's ample scope there for having modal interchanges where bus services could come in and, and link up with trains and and improve the frequency and timetabling is that has that been exploited at all by the system
3: um it's been somewhat disappointing because one of the benefits of um, the grade separation program has been to, um, instead of vehicles, because you know bus routes also use a lot of the roads that were held up by mm, boom gates. That, yeah. There's potential to upgrade the bus network, uh, recast bus routes, so that instead of having to avoid level crossings, they can provide a through service. That's partially done with the orbital smart buses but there's room to do a lot more of that like there are some routes in say there's a route 704 east of Clayton along Centre Road that just stops in a dead end and if you look at the history of that dead end it was like an old Volkswagen factory or something like that and uh, yeah, if 60s, kilo- yeah. yeah if you go a few Ooh. kilometres further there's places that the bus could link into and intersect with other routes um, so yeah um, Perth does very well with bus and train interchanges, Uh, we haven't always done so well. Um, There are some places we have done, like Nanawadding is is quite a good interchange between bus and train, in which you can go from a a bus, um, you just go down the steps under the road and catch a train, whereas somewhere like Springvale is an example of an opportunity lost where you still have to cross Springvale Road to go from the bus in one direction to the platform. So bus train interchange is something that a good grade separation program including skyrail can really facilitate but we haven't always taken those opportunities
1: i I think you could assume that when a bus goes past a station it's going to be a major node isn't it definitely yeah but so so this idea that you you wouldn't try and improve you know improve the the arrangements Mm. and of course there's a there's a, there are ways to improve things without making them perfect, but they're still moving in a better direction.
0: But also, if there's a road between the yeah. two, mm. that cr- increases danger for pedestrians, yeah. particularly yeah. with an infrequent service, people are going to try and
1: well, well, rush that, across. Well, I think that's a ma- that is quite a major problem. People yeah. get desperate. They, that,
3: they, that's they, right. Um, yeah. Your ideal station design is such that... Um, First of all, you're not delaying the bus going through. Like if you look at Glen Waverley Station where the bus actually has to pull off Springvale Road and loop around, um, um, time is money with running (laughs) buses and people want fast transit time so you can increase frequency. So you don't want the bus to leave its road but you also do not want... Ideally, pedestrians need to be able to walk straight from the train platform onto the bus maybe via a lift and some escalators but not having to cross the road and... Yeah. that that's that's the ideal arrangement yeah. um, i think
1: broad meadows is gotten, a, yeah. yeah broad meadows is a classic I've, I've been on the orbital buses at the 903 or 901 i've forgotten which 901 yeah, yeah 901 um, it does this double loop around broad meadows mm. in in the process of going through and it's not not at all clear to me what that's all about but it means you spend i think it might be close to 15 minutes getting nowhere yeah. in, in Broadmeadows.
3: That, The thing is with buses is that frequency is freedom. You want as much frequency as possible, but frequency also costs money. It costs Mm. drivers and buses, and therefore to get frequency, you need efficient routes. That means as straight as possible, as direct as possible, with as few deviations as possible, Mm. Um, and a lot of that flows into bus network reform. Like We we, we have routes that duplicate one another in areas where there aren't very many passengers. Um, For instance, there are um, um, especially in areas like Greensboro, Eltham, parts of Templestowe, you've got multiple bus routes running along the same corridor. There isn't the passenger numbers, yet yeah. if you were able to reform the network, you would be able to free up the bus hours to run frequent service where it would get higher patronage. So and how, that's, how that's do one we, the powers of reform.
1: How do we get at the... Um, well, it's both the bureaucrats and the politicians and convince them, I suppose also the operators too.
0: Well, I was going to I ask, think you, I, it, Peter, it, it, just come out in here, because I was going to mention as well, and adding to what John just said, these bus companies get billions of dollars of public money to run the services, so should not the public have much more say in how they run and how they operate?
3: Yeah, um, well, first of all, it's a government decision. It's the Department of Transport. The bus operators will run whatever service the... Um, Department of Transport specifies. So it is our elected representatives, they, uh, rightly or wrongly, I, I think they are somewhat, they some have had quite bitter experiences of bus reform. For instance, in 2015, uh, one of our big operators, Transdev, sought to put in a, a new network, which had some benefits, but some people were less off. And one of the first decisions of the incoming Labor government um was to reject that bus network and it wasn't and that network was there wasn't much public consultation in the drawing up of that network and on balance the government was probably right to reject it. Um, You do need a process a public engagement process when you plan to put in a a bus network you need to tell people the benefits and trade-offs however there have been cases like we've followed that in the case of the Wyndham network where there was public consultation it's important though to ensure that you talk to um a wide as a range of cross-section of the community as possible those who go to public meetings for instance at night are not necessarily a representative sample of the population so Mm. you you need to make sure your consultation includes people including busy people with families that don't necessarily go along to Public meetings and things, um, you need to make sure that the network serves the majority and not just a uh, uh, a small minority yeah and, I... and, and...
1: sorry go, go on
3: um, and, and that's where the design of your public consultation and engagement is absolutely critical um, in the case of Wyndham, there are different options like the online surveys yeah. as well as uh, meetings so that both was both that was all... the,
1: that was pretty reasonable consultation in your view. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the probably was still
3: yeah. gaps, like there are some passenger groups that are quite hard to reach, like those who you whose know, second language is English, and others who may be bus, high bus users. Um, but overall, I think the important an important thing is if you look at what a new bus network can do, it can greatly increase the mobility of people. It can bring coverage to new areas. It can increase frequency and connectivity if it's done well. So, overall, more people would benefit from a revised bus network than keeping the status quo. And that's an important message, I think, we need to sell to politicians. Um, We're a growing city. Buses are the nearest form of public transport to most people in in Melbourne. Um, And it's high time that we had a reformed bus network. Um, Currently, it's carrying about 120 million people per year. It should be doing a lot better. It should be carrying something like 200 million people per year. It's, uh, it's quite paradoxical that our tram network is far smaller than our bus network, yet it carries many more people, despite it serving much fewer suburbs. So, uh, yeah, um, I think there's huge potential for buses in what we can uh, what it can do. It can go to the major shopping centres, the major universities... They don't necessarily all have trains and trams, no. and with direct routes along main roads, then people will start to use them as an alternative to driving.
0: That was a great policy speech to finish up on, I thought.
1: No, yes. <laughs> that was a great overview, Peter. Thank Peter, you.
0: thank you very much, yeah.
1: So thank, thank you, yeah. Peter Parker. A pleasure. And by the way, just a, just a quick question. Your blog is called Melbourne in Transit, is that right?
3: Um a slight correction there. Melbourne on Transit. On Transit, I do beg your pardon. <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh,
1: Melbourne
0: okay, well, on Okay. Well
1: well recommended, I think, if yeah. you're interested in Can't the area job. at all. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and thank, thank you, Peter. Thank you,
0: Peter. That's the show today. John, I, I did want to um, I did want to talk to you, but we won't, won't have time today now, maybe next month, about there's been a lot of news recently about the um, tunnel or no tunnel in airport link. Yeah, um, yeah. I can I um, just very briefly give yeah, a couple of
1: sentences. All right. Yeah, two sentences. Well, well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for For a fast for a fast route to the airport via Sunshine, at least some of the route between the city and Sunshine will have to be a tunnel, to because there's no, there won't be enough capacity on the present rail lines. But if you dig a tunnel, that tunnel could carry airport trains, but it could also carry fast trains from Geelong, Ballarat, and Bendigo. So it may well be quite quite a useful useful tunnel if they if mm. really in need, want to speed up those regional services. Yeah. The place to speed them up, paradoxically, is where they currently run more slowly through the city. That's, the, that's where they really need to speed up.
0: Yeah, right here. The One other worrying factor, again, in one sentence this mm. time, um, the, air, the air, airport owner itself, which has a total yes. monopoly out there, has now put in a bid yes. to actually build and own, or not to, to build totally, it wants to put some money into it and then own totally... The new airport well, leaked. Now well, that would be a disaster, wouldn't
1: it? I think it would. Yeah, they they want to run a um, a very top top end service that'll suit uh, business travellers and posh travellers of all kinds, and won't necessarily suit or ordinary travellers or workers in mm. in the, in the um, airport who would get some benefit from a decent train yeah, to the airport. yeah. yeah.
0: Maybe more on that next month. Yeah, sure. Which is our last one for the year, John, isn't it? Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's now it says 9.57. We've got about three minutes, but Joe's going to come in. So um, but unless you had something else you wanted to say? We that? Uh, no, obviously say not. Say
1: a little more about the, yeah, about the uh, airport. The airport railing is, is a fascinating project, and it's, um, yeah. we should get whatever benefits we can out of a tunnel, because you know, that will be expensive. But yeah. we are going to need more, more capacity, but yeah, it would benefit more than just that link it would benefit yes, other, other yes, lines yeah. yes, yes. alright
0: right. more on that next month Okay. thanks hey, Thanks to Idwin, John you are the guest today, thank you for doing a wonderful job
1: thank you Idwin, for stepping <laughs> in and looking after us it's, <laughs> no it's problem. been
0: great okay, next week um, it's energy and we're going to be talking um, we're going to be talking to um, a, a person up in the Hunter Valley about the effect of, that's one interview okay. we're going to have next week, about the impact of coal mining on communities in the Hunter Valley so that's One item next week.